Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, you're listening to the Never Strays Far podcast with me, Ned Bolting, and me, David Miller. This podcast is brought to you by your company, David, which is called... Chapter 3. Go and check it out at chapter3.com, that's C-H-P-T-3, and you'll learn all about it. I founded it in 2015. Excellent. And by The Roadbook, which is the definitive cycling almanac, available for the duration of uh, Paris-Nice, which we'll be podcasting from every day, with a discount code that allows you free shipping on all UK orders. Just go to the website and enter NSF2020 when you check out. Ned, we're live. Chalette sur Luang, David. 212.5 kilometers to La Chartre once again. It was grim. Once again, it rained. And once again, the wind blew. And once again, it was a great race with a chaotic, chaotic sprint in the end. Yeah, it was. I mean, it's uh, it is the longest stage of the race, 212 kilometers or whatever it was. And majority headwind, head crosswind. We'll discuss this in commentary. It's the longest stage in the race, David. It's not... Stage five is, but never mind, never mind. Go on, carry on. How long stage almost. five? Almost, it's almost the longest. Go, just go with that, it's fine, carry on. How long stage five? 227. Oh, that's a lot longer as well, yeah. isn't it? A little bit. Okay. The second longest stage in Paris, <laughs> and counter to what you would think, uh, head crosswind is a lot less precarious than tail crosswind. Yeah, that's weird, isn't it? Yeah. I kind of get it now, but it's taken me about 10 years to understand that. Yeah, so there was a head crosswind today, and that does mean uh, that you get a lot more protection in the slipstream. So when it does go hard, uh, you're getting probably 30, 40 percentile more rest in the wheel. But when it's a tail crosswind, there's much less air to protect you because you're going faster and it's uh, behind you. So you're, you're not protected, hence why you see it all stringing out. And then you're all going at 60, 65 kilometers an hour. And people are losing the wheel and can't get back on. And one bike length, you just can't do anything about. But in a head crosswind, you're talking about 45 to 50 kilometers an hour. And you lose a bike length, you just have to make that punch. And if you get back into the sanctuary of that slipstream, you're safe again. Mm. So today was a head crosswind day. So although you've got to be careful because it's Paris-Nice, because there's always the risk that it's going to blow to pieces. Actually, it was relatively safe. Yet it still did uh, reduce massively in the final 20Ks. I mean, the final stage result will have big gaps. As groups come to the line, we're watching them do just that now, including a group with Brian Cockard, another group just coming to the line here with Michael Matthews, I think, in it. I'm not sure, actually. Um, But a lot of these gaps weren't formed simply by um, echelons being formed in the crosswinds, as you say. They were the result of crashes and riders getting, so the line getting broken like that as well. Yeah, they're stress crashes because it's, you'd see it's, it's basically people fighting for position or in a moment uh, of, Lack of concentration, you cross wheels and you make... Because everyone in a head cross, everyone's so close to each other in the peloton. And we're just watching the sprint yeah. now, explain. So here's the... We're watching a replay now of the uh, final kilometre. And De Koenig Quickstep, at this point, with about 800 metres to go, have got uh, Stubar, uh, Yves Lampart, 
Michael Murku and then Sam Bennett lined up in fourth wheel and everyone else has got bits and pieces or no lead out men and Sagan is lurking ominously in around about fifth place. Yeah, Sagan's ghosting around. Strangely, he didn't have Ackerman. We saw Ackerman earlier before riding in the winds. You've got Caleb Ewan who has two teammates but it's all in disarray. As for uh, uh, Elia Bibiani, he's got no teammates and there you go. They, they, Kerning calls sit up because I don't know what happened there but then all of a sudden you find Sam Bennett re- basically weird. just reversing back trying to find the wheel moment. but what is uh, interesting Ivan Garcia Barry McLaren sitting amongst all this much like Peter Sagan just a, a solo fighter just trying to find his moment and there Hofstetter Hugo Hofstetter the French rider who won Lusamin um, from Israel Startup was looking for a space that I don't think existed and he created that crash that brought down Sam Bennett yeah, and Sam Bennett went down hard. So Sam Bennett went from hero to zero in the space of 300 metres. He had three teammates in front of him. They all split off, and then he finds himself on the floor. Meanwhile, Ivan Garcia finds a way through the hole and punches through and proves that two days ago on stage one, when he was like MVP for the day on the front trying to control the race, he just dominated that sprint, but from nowhere. It was, uh, it was really impressive. Peter Sagan, in the meantime was interesting because I was enjoying that whole moment of live commentary, willing and wishing him to win <laughs> in order to just prove you wrong. Well, he came very close. He well, he came got second. Very, he, came very, he came very close. What can I say? I mean, there's plenty I can say. We'll come to that, um, I'm sure. Barlow McLaren now have won stages in the Saudi Tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, not with Mark Cavanish, who's working as a lead-out man, and they've won here. They've got sprinters um, that are capable of winning at the, the very highest level, but Garcia's, Garcia's not produced a result like that in that kind of company ever. But it was a distinct and very particular bunch finish here, wasn't it? It was slightly uphill over quite a prolonged period, not just the last kilometre, um, and it was into a very strong headwind, and those are anomalous sometimes, those finishes. Yeah, it was chaotic. They're, because of the very nature of the race, Paris-Nice, no team is going to bring uh, an absolute pure lead-out train. Then there, there, there are the conditions. The, as we discussed, it's almost semi-classics. And Sorry about my phone making... Oh, that's what it is. The, ca- the cable is on the microphone cable. Which is oh, causing... well, that'll be the reason why. There, what was it? Go. I can't hear it. You've got the headphones on. Oh, it's cracking? on my cable, so it's oh, crackling, making that annoying phone You've sound. solved it now. You're a tech genius. Yeah, a tech genius. Um, yeah, and the thing is, the very thing with this, tea, this race is, is that it's much like Dauphiné, where it's one of those stage races where you have a mixture of riders, and it does mean that the sprints are quite chaotic because there is no team here that's purely dedicated to that. Mm. But actually, that's modern cycling as a whole, isn't it? We very rarely see teams turn up with a full Arsenal lead out and total dedication to one one discipline. Uh, Seemingly, yeah. Yeah, and yep. so I think uh, there's riders like even Garcia are getting opportunities which they didn't have before. And then you get disruptor teams that turn up with a uh, total dedication to seemingly no particular discipline. Can I <laughs> like, just, like yeah. was the case with Israel Startup today, yeah. who were disruptors. And uh, I mean, have I misread that? Looking at that replay, do you think Ofstetter is going to... Well, we'll see it again now. And, and incur a bit of wrath there from his fellow pros? Uh, yeah, it's I mean... Pretty, it's a pretty punchy bit of riding, I think. Even as he hits the floor, he's putting his hand on his head. Like, putting his hand... And there, he, I can see it now. So, if, you, if you're able to watch this in a replay later, it's getting a bit chaotic beyond the, the perfect lead-out to Koenig, 
There's three riders, as Ned described before, Sam Bennett there, Peter Sagan just ghosting around, Caleb Ewan moving out with the Lotus Sudar rider. And then from behind, you've got the bunch of individuals trying to come up and trying to find gaps, trying to make their own lead out with the other riders. And amongst all that, there you have the, the Israeli startup trying to get on Iviviani's wheel, and then he's punching round, and then here we go, it's about to kind of come up. He's At the about moment to, where Deconic Quickstep just implode. They implode, which then causes this absolute disruption in momentum. And then everyone just starts diving in. And he just, he finds a space, which is normal. But what he's doing is he gets crossed up because one of the riders in front of him then switches direction. Nothing. There it is. And it's like he literally slams Sam Bennett into the barriers and he hits the floor and slides along on his rear end and slaps his own helmet. So it was one of those crashes, which was, well, it's a race situation. It was no one's particular fault, to be fair. Although I'm sure people will say it is. Yeah. Um, And that was that. Um, Buani finishing in decent shape there in the minor placings. Pasqualon, Case Ball confirming his uh, potential, I think, and Giacomo Nizzolo in the top 10, but uh, a lot of riders missing out. GC Group, I think everybody of note made it to the line in one piece, I think. Um, and talking about GC, one of the things, the issues we discussed today, David, was Max Schachmann's potential in this race. Because I, I learned a lot from you today, well, I mean, which I was I, unaware of, which no, I'm sure no, most I mean, of the I learned a lot are. myself just because, he, uh, yes, he's a rider I've been watching with interest, over, sure many of us have over the last couple of years, but he is a rider I associate with, for example, third place a couple of years ago at Liège-Bastogne-Liège. He is a rider who you associate with a punchy one-kilometre climb, but not much more than that. I don't really think of him as a time trialist. Perhaps I should pay a bit more attention to that. And, and again, he might be one of those riders who tomorrow is put in a position where he will have to ride a time trial in a different way from any time trial he's ever had to race before because it'll really mean something, and that's not often the case for Max Schachmann. Despite that, he won the individual time trial last year at the Tour of the Basque Country, and he won three stages in total, um, one of which was a... Well, they're always full of climbing, aren't they, stages in the Basque Country? And um, and uh, w- one of which saw him take the win ahead of Jakob Fulsang, Adam Yates and Tade Pogaccia. Albeit different types of climbs from the one he's going to have to defend on stage seven. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I mean, the fact is the Tour of the Basque Country is considered to be one of the hardest stage races on the professional racing calendar. And for many pro riders, it's a, a career dread to be sent there. And so to win three stages, it's, woof, that's next level. But we were talking about this before. It's because of what's happened with... in the past 18 months with professional cycling he is uh, almost overshadowed in the shadows of riders like Matteo van der Poel Remco Evenepoel sorry about this phone sound I don't know where it's coming from it's like really annoying <laughs> hang on maybe that will do it okay fingers crossed that's fixed it um, but yeah and so I think uh, Schachmann is very much in the truest sense and this happens very rarely in professional cycling he's a dark horse and it's one that I had completely underestimated. Well, um, one, one of the reasons why he left the Koenig Quickstep was because he's too similar in, in his, in his um, profile as a rider to Julien Alaphilippe. And it's, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because in a, in a kind of miniaturized way, we're watching a rider face the same, uh, contemplate the same journey that we saw, you know, thrillingly Julien Alaphilippe do on a much bigger race on the Tour de France over three weeks. But Chapman's got the same sort of, ooh, I'm in yeah. this position now. I should probably try and win this race. I might be able to. All in. All yeah. in. Yeah. Um, which is very interesting, I think, to watch. Yeah. Um, he's got some significant gaps. Um, now, 
Should we talk about his teammate, team captain, team leader, legend of the sport, three-time world champion, Peter Sagan? I think we should, because he didn't win again today. (laughs) He lost horribly. Mate, he was very close. You're absolutely right. There are signs, actually. He did give an interview... Um, in which he said, suggested he's getting stronger each day, he can feel it. And um, that's evident in the way he raced yesterday and the way he raced today. And it is interesting, more think about it, David, having, because I noted that Pascal Ackerman was working on the front with about 10, 15 kilometres to go. And with, with the benefit of hindsight now, that is significant, isn't it? Because I think on the team bus, especially with the uphill nature of today's finish and possibly the knowledge that it would be into a headwind, um, Sagan said, leave this to me, hold my beer, Pascal. Very possibly. Uh, I think it's going to be interesting what happens in the next few days. And it does seem that Peter Sagan is very much here in a road captain role, uh, the way he's been racing. Probably out of just pragmatism. Yeah. But we caught glimpses today in that final 15Ks that he did look effortless. Closer. So he's actually made me adjust one of my statistics that I've been working on throughout the day. So here's my justification for my ridiculous prediction. So the prediction, just to recap, if this is the first time listening to the podcast, is that Ned's made some amazing predictions, Predictions. which, uh, once again, we'll put in the show notes, Uh, one of them being that Sagan will will start to never win a race in 2020, and it's been doubled down to never win a race ever again. Never win another bike race. Yep, yep, yep. So the (laughs) the reasons for that are the bell curve of his results, which I indicated to you yesterday, um, I plucked that from thin air and was delighted to find that it's actually true. That's just seven expertise. His last seven years of results, excluding 2020, which has only just started. Okay. Starting at 2014, year by year. Seven wins, nine wins, 14 wins, 12 wins, seven wins last year, four wins. Bell curve. Now, there are other years prior to 2014 which don't substantiate my argument. So I've left them out. That's fine. Is that okay? That's fine. I had a a teacher at school and who did economics and who told me that economics are like a bikini. They reveal a lot, but not the important bits. It was a boys' school. And... um, (laughs) extraordinary comment i know it is isn't it We're not only was it a boys school it was the 1980s as well yeah exactly um, right um here so it doesn't finish with the bell curve right okay he has had throughout his as you rightly indicate three-time world champion multiple monument winner blah 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 in immense right the rider of a generation in many ways he has had uh, over the course of that career that is still ongoing um <laughs> he hasn't finished um he <laughs> He's had, as far as I can make out, four kind of long win, by his standards. I mean, some riders go an entire decade without a yeah. win, right? He's had mini droughts. He's had mini droughts by Sagan standards, right? Yeah. So he's had four sort of mini droughts in his career. Um, he's going through one right now, okay? I would suggest. Dry spells, His actually. last win came at the Tour de France, right? That is today, exactly eight months ago. And it is, how many races ago? Uh, I didn't notice, I noticed, 23, 24 race days have passed now, including today, uh, without him actually winning, right? Um, that's not the longest drought he's had, by the way. In 20, but they're, they're quite recent, the other two. In 2019, he went 26 race days without a win, from the Tour Down Under to the Tour of California. In 2018, he actually went longer. He went 31 race days without a win. 
And actually, interestingly, in his strange year before everything started to go right for him in 2015, 16, 17, the rainbow years, um, in 2014, he won the national championship of Slovakia in June and then nothing else. Um, But, and here I think is a bit of a difference, in 2014, he had seven podium finishes, most of which were second place and most of which were at the Tour de France at the very highest level. Okay, he did finish second today, I'll grant you that, and he was a close second as well. But that hasn't happened with the frequency that it used to. So, in other words, when he's not won, he's not been close to as close to the front. He's in a downward spiral, in other words. He's in a slight downward spiral. Right, okay, so those are the, those are the facts. Mm-hmm. I've given you some facts there. Yeah. All right? Here's the interpretative bit, um, one of which has perhaps more legs than the other, or one of which is a bit more speculative than the other. Here's the slightly more um, evidence-based one that I think is probably more meaningful, actually. Um, Bora Hansgrohe as a team are changing. When he first signed for them, um, he was he, he was probably eighty percent of their wage bill. <laughs> he was yeah. he was their raison d'être. He was he, the team was built around him. Don't forget how fast that team had uh, you know risen up. Yeah. You know from Endura to NetApp, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden World Tour signed the greatest rider of the of the, mm-hmm. of, the of the era, pay him a fortune, build a team around him. He was top dog. Mm-hmm. Bora Hansgrohe are a German team, and they are. That's the reason why Sam Bennett has had to move on because he's not valued. His nationality was not valued. He's never going to get a chance at the Tour de France, right? Mm-hmm. They have got in Pascal Ackermann, the fastest sprinter in Germany, in uh, Max Schachmann, a potential Julian Alaphilippe, mm-hmm. and all three of these have been German national champions, and in Emmanuel Buchmann, a developing GC rider for a three-week stage race. Sagan is one of their leaders now. He's a big leader, but he's one of their leaders. He's not the only one. Yeah, That's just my interpretation of what Bora Hansker are, are about. And the other thing here, and this is, I don't know the guy. I mean, I've interviewed him dozens and dozens of times, but I know him as little as we all know him, really. He's 30. It's very pu- matter of public knowledge. He's been through a divorce a couple of years ago um, uh, from his wife, Katerina, who was uh, very, very close to him, obviously, for a number of years. And even... You know, so he's been racing hard under immense pressure for a decade. You spoke very articulately about the 2010 edition of Paris when you first saw mm. his. Um, he took that first World Tour win. That's ten years ago. That's a yeah. lot of miles, and that's a lot of mental stress apart from the physical stress. So he's 30 years of age, um, and even then, all along, I have always felt with Peter Sagan that he has been. Um, slightly he's not understood his own brilliance in and put it into context because i'm not sure quite how deeply his heart lies in road racing i think that he's always had distractions in his life and he's always, there's always been something slightly disassociated from him he's not vincenzo nibali you know he's more he's more chris Froome in some ways that he's a slight anomaly and he's come from outside of the norm and um and I wonder whether it's, I wonder whether to the same extent his heart is in it. So I've given you statistics, I've given you an interpretation of Border Hansgrohe, and I've given you some absolute psycho babble as well. So what? How else can you top this, Ned? Well, I'm just getting it out there today because he'll probably win tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I thought there are. I, I wanted to give myself the credit of I've made a ridiculous prediction which will fall flat on its ass very soon. But I've made it with conviction and with evidence. Conviction, commitment, and evidence. Yeah. And I want to just—I wanted to close off this podcast as well by um, telling the listeners how much I value Peter Sagan. I, before I started commentating with you, I used to conduct all the post-race interviews on the tour, 
And day after, literally day after day, because he was always in the green jersey, I would interview him. And I loved interviewing him. I think he's a wonderful human being. I think he's been, I mean, he's just, his, his brilliance needs no elucidating. I'm a Peter Sagan fan. I do not want to see the end of this, um, the demise of this career. Eventually it will stop. They all do. And it may well not be now. And to put that into context, I've done a kind of audio book, David. I'm really looking forward to listening to this. Sounds like a Radio 4 play, mate. I know, because uh, I think uh, you, you brought in some local music. You, it's one some of your highest ever production values. It's very, very good. It's like, imagine, close your eyes, and it's like a Radio 4 drama in an afternoon, Sunday afternoon, just, you know, it's about 20 minutes long. And it's an extract from a book I wrote in 2014 called 101 Damnations. And it's the story of Peter Sagan and the 2014 Tour de France. Every stage is a Peter Sagan stage. Things had started normally enough for Peter Sagan. In Leeds, he'd been on exemplary Peter Sagan form. That day, he'd been one of the final riders to sign on. He climbed up the steps of the podium outside the city hall to be greeted enthusiastically by a man with a microphone. Peter Sagan, said the man correctly. Can you give me a sense of how it feels to be here at the Grand Depart in Yorkshire? What's the atmosphere like ahead of the race, and how do you think it's being received in Leeds? He thrust the microphone in front of the deadpan young Slovakian. Sagan took a second or two to gaze out on the massive crowds packed up against the barriers and stretching up the hedgerow and away from the city centre. They waited for him to deliver his verdict, and when it came, it was devastating. Hello, he said, and walked away. But after a few days, I'd started to worry about the green jersey. There was no need for me to worry about him, of course, since Peter Sagan is as solid a piece of flesh and as tough a competitor as you're likely to find on the Tour de France. But still, he didn't seem quite himself. First, there'd been his baffling appearance at the rider presentation, or opening ceremony as the Tour was trying to rebrand it, back in Leeds. I'm led to understand that it was in homage to Wolverine, of whom I know very little, save for the name. Sagan had spray-painted his bike and his helmet with the trappings and iconography of this fictional character, and all that looked highly professional. But I couldn't help feeling that his haircut, in its sheer complexity and botched execution, had been more homespun. It suggested a degree of improvisation, to say the very least, and possibly the use of scissors and a mirror. For he had appeared on stage sporting a head of hair that can fairly be described as very surprising. It was as if he'd washed his hair and had been hung upside down with a battery of hair dryers blasting downward thrusts at his locks. Then, once he'd been righted again, the central plateau at the top of his cranium was ironed flat and dipped in the same phosphoric green stuff that you use to make things glow in the dark, so that a ridge of unruly and upstanding hair now fringed his head like the trimmings of a thick crust pizza. But despite my best efforts, I'm not doing it justice. It was far more complex than that. The fact of the matter was that the world's most exciting cyclist had taken to the stage with a barnet so extravagantly daft that it almost defied belief. It was, at least in part, vertical, which hair should obviously never be, and it had been highlighted light green, which is also a thing that it is probably better not to do with hair. The result was that he looked as if his head had been dunked in copper carbonate solution and then passed under a magnet from a breaker's yard. The presentation team, including the unflappable Jill Douglas, working on the stage that evening, did well to stick to the script. Once he'd made his way across to them, they asked him something appropriate and generic along the lines of, So Peter, what are your ambitions for this year's tour? 
But as Matt Rendell pointed out to me, there was really only one question that should have been asked, only one question that was really relevant, and everyone at home was thinking the same thing at the same time. Peter, what in the name of God has gone wrong with your hair? My hair is like this because I am Peter Sagan. That's what he would have said, I'm certain of it. He is, or maybe was a year or two ago, the closest thing that cycling could boast to a real-life superhero. Young, in 2014 he was still only 24, which is nothing for a cyclist, and incorrigibly fun-loving. He started off life as a mountain biker and all-round eccentric, turning up to races in a pair of gym shoes instead of proper cycling footwear. When he made his switch to professional road racing, he had an instant impact, winning major races almost effortlessly and putting the fear of God into the rest of the peloton. His unique selling point was, and still is, his versatility. He can climb, he can ride fast over a sustained period, he can descend quite fearlessly, and he can sprint. That means that there are a number of different ways in which he can win races. There was a time, long ago, when riders who could do everything flourished on the Grand Tours, and not just in the one-day classics. Riders who won in the mountains and in the long-form time trials would also contest bunch sprints for fun and set hour records on the track, and there was none greater than Eddie Merckx. That's why, as in football, with its endless search for the new best or the new Maradona, there are occasional riders who are saddled with the unwanted moniker of the new Mercs in an era when the cycling landscape has become so specialised and stratified that there can never be another all-conquering all-rounder. But that doesn't stop the yearning, and nor has it stopped people from comparing Sagan to the great Belgian, an accolade that at times he seemed to justify. His first two tours were triumphant. He won three stages in 2012 in the green jersey. Then he won another stage in 2013 and once more finished the race in green. The green bouffant of 2014 was just typical Sagan. The tours he has ridden have all been royally exploited by his insatiable desire to promote his own highly individualised brand of weirdly teenaged self-aggrandisement. There were his noticeable... <coughs> there were his notable celebrations from Running Man legs pumping, arms pumping, in homage to Forrest Gump, to the chicken, legs pumping, arms are flapping. As he won plenty of stages in plenty of other races too, there were plenty of Sagan-esque variations on offer. Often, he would round things off with some roguish, borderline reprehensible behaviour, such as signing the breasts of a female fan or pinching the bottom of a podium girl, as he did after the 2013 Tour of Flanders. Now, this you might think is unremarkable behaviour, especially when you put it alongside the self-indulgence of footballers who are simply unable to celebrate a goal without variously pointing to their names on their back, kissing the badge, raising their fingers to the sky in homage to a recently deceased relative, swinging their arms in a cradling motion to pay tribute to their own ability to procreate, or in Robbie Fowler's case, dropping to their knees and pretending to snort up a line of cocaine. But celebrating stupidly simply isn't very cycling. In the field of athletic self-love, dressed up as charisma, cycling has lagged woefully behind other sports. Perhaps this is because of the prerogative for zipping up and showing off the sponsor's name, the one fundamental of winning which oils the rusty misshapen wheels of commerce in this highly dysfunctional sport. Or maybe it's because of the sheer difficulty of doing anything other than sitting upright and shouting with your arms spread-eagled when you're coasting over the line at 40 miles an hour. Have you ever tried it? I have, I'm ashamed to say. I can manage nothing much more than a wobbly three or four metres before I'm lurching hands first back to the comforting feel of the handlebars beneath my palms, separating me from certain pain. In short, it isn't that easy to show off much on a bike unless you're able to pull a wheelie up a mountain, as the more extrovert members of the gruppetto want to do on mountain stages for the edification of the patient masses. But Sagan's exuberance is a game-changer. 
Not since Mario Cipollini's inexplicable cult status as something of a character, predicated on his insatiable attention-seeking outfits, which ran the full gamut from tacky to gaudy to Blackpool on a Friday night, had cycling known an expanding violet quite like Peter Sagan. He started to turn up to races with a different theme each year, pimping his bike and spray-painting the frame and his helmet with another action hero or fantasy monster in broadly the same aesthetic style with which heavy metal-admiring German truck drivers like to adorn their HGVs. Sagan needed bling, cycling needed bling, ergo cycling needed Sagan every bit as much as Sagan needed cycling. A virtuous circle had been closed, and on that, everyone could agree and enjoy. But what saves Sagan, what makes him better than the sum of his marketing, is the unbending, non-pliable, unreconstructed Saganness of his every expression, his every utterance. Now, Saganness is a hard term to define as well as to spell. It is occasionally monosyllabic, but it can be expansive at times. Mostly it is downbeat, but has been known to stray into the realm of pure bravado. It is, as I was to find during this tour, endearingly and enduringly fascinating. This is largely because it is not artificial. There is no spin with Sagan, save for the poster on the bedroom wall superhero branding. When he speaks, he is unable to hide behind any amount of hair gel. For the Saganness of Peter Sagan will out, as sure as eggs are eggs and hair is hair. But this year was proving to be a bit of a tester, to say the least. Everything was in place for another show of strength from the Terminator, as he has on occasion been known. Everything, that is, except for the missing top 5% of form, that extra bit which wins you bike races in a sprint. Not that 95% of Peter Sagan was entirely pointless. It was easily enough to win the green jersey for the third consecutive year. On the first seven stages of the race, he did not finish outside of the top five, but equally, he didn't win any. This was almost impossible to achieve. It almost flouted the law of averages. Time and time again, he'd get everything into place and then misread the race by refusing to chase down riders on his own, or he would get edged out of a group kick. This was where his problem lay. This was the heart of Sagan syndrome, as we dubbed it, the terrible burden of being brilliant. An outstanding sprinter, but not quite the best. A powerful climber, but not the best. A powerful time trialist, but no Tony Martin. He was just too good at too many things, and perhaps not quite the best at any of them. And wherever he went, whatever he did, he was a marked man. The peloton simply never took their eyes off him. Every day after the race, dressed in the green jersey that he'd virtually won before we'd crossed the channel, he would enter the interview area with a reluctant shuffle, knowing what questions to expect. On stage five, in the rain and over the cobbles and riding over the pavé at one point with such consummate ease that he carried his shades in his mouth and was breathing through his nose, he'd managed fourth place, heading a group of riders that included Fabian Cancellara. After that effort, he confided in me, This is not the winning Peter Sagan. He looked mightily confused by this rare turn of events that involved him regularly getting beaten by other cyclists who didn't have the humility to finish behind the taciturn Terminator. Then he added... I do not know what to do, and it was clear that he didn't. The sparkle had gone. The twinkle had deserted him. Even the infectious nervous giggle with which he often rounded off his enigmatic pronouncements had gone back into its hutch to lick its fur. Seven consecutive top five finishes was, by any normal yardstick, exceptional. But if you've banked up a series of extravagant celebrations ready to be unleashed on the waiting world, then third place, or even second, barely registers. On stage six, and not for the first time in the race, he fell. Yet despite cuts to his elbow and his legs, he still managed to contest a bunch sprint that was won by Andre Greipel from Alexander Kristoff. Sagan came fifth. That day, the media minders who chaperoned the riders from the podium to the waiting press had a warning. 
Only one question today for Sagan. He fell and he is very angry. We are often instructed to ask just one question, something that we never do. For a start, there is a risk that with Sagan being Sagan and extremely steeped in Saganness, the one answer might be as short as yes or maybe, maybe or no. But also, and more pertinently, I like to think of my interviews as a conversation along the lines of something you might engage in during the course of normal human interaction. Here's an example of a conversation. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Fine, thanks. Good. If the one-question-only rules apply, then restricting the conversation simply to an exchange of good mornings is of no merit. It's simply like passing someone in the corridor. However, allowed to breathe and develop, it can release a gem like, fine, thanks. At this point, it has become a full-blown conversation, an exchange of information with content and context. It is, in fact, a story. You could run this story on the Highlights Show or even write it up as a race report under the headline, Rider X declares himself content. Rider X today described himself as feeling well and thanked the waiting media for their concern. It was in answer to questions that had arisen as to his exact state of contentment that he finally confronted the issue head on. I'm fine, he said, before expressing his gratitude for the attention being paid and the concern expressed as to the levels of well-being he was currently enjoying. Thanks, he said to the assembled members of the press who had asked him how he was feeling. So my rule of thumb is never to allow myself to be restricted to just one question, especially not by Peter Sagan, who now paced with the weary reluctance of a condemned man to where I stood. I was busily exuding what I hoped looked like a consoling beam of admiration and sympathy, although I now accept it may well have just looked like an irritating simpleton hanging over a barrier with a microphone in his hand and a daft grin across his features. Peter, I'm worried about you. Are you enjoying this Tour de France? A Sagan-esque pause. You know, it is hard when every day you are close but not winning. (laughs) And then there was the giggle. It had been a long time since it had come out to play. A winning chuckle that sounded like it came from an old-fashioned talking toy with a drawstring. It made me smile, and it almost, almost made him smile too. Keep smiling, though, I implored. He looked at me quite intensely, so I went on to explain myself. The Tour de France needs you smiling. It was meant as a compliment but it came across differently. It must have sounded to him like the words of an idiot. I would like to see you smiling if you had crashed three times. (laughs) The simple, undeniable logic of what he said left me nowhere to go, except to say, fair point, that's a fair point. And with that he walked away, and straight towards the clutch of shaven-headed security personnel with earpieces and muscles rippling under sharply tailored suits, who'd appeared from nowhere to indicate the presence of the French president, François Hollande. They parted to let Sagan through. The Slovakian, dressed from head to toe in green, stomped sullenly back to where he'd left his bike, leaning up at the back of the podium, hopped on it and rode off with his head bowed. The guards watched him go and then returned to checking Facebook on their iPhones, unable to hide their boredom at the patent lack of clear and present danger, save for the slightly glowering mood of a young Eastern European Wolverine impersonator on a bicycle. The next morning at the start line, I decided to seek him out again. The profile listed in the roadbook for stage seven looked decidedly Saganian. That word denoted a certain type of stage which suited his characteristics, punchy climbing and recklessly fast descending. It had the requisite Saganian short, sharp climbs in the closing kilometres that should have presented no great obstacle for him, but in theory might have been sufficiently difficult to drop the massive bulk of the big German sprinters and, with luck, the huge frame of Katusha's increasingly threatening-looking Norwegian Alexander Christoph. Good morning, Peter. 
He had emerged from his lime-green Cannondale team bus into the watery sunlight of Epernay, blinking and shy when confronted with the standard gaggle of gawkers, autograph hunters and selfie junkies who had gathered around his themed bike that bore the number 51. Then there was me. I assailed him with some questioning. How are you? I am still alive. This man could write his own headlines. Today's stage is a Peter Sagan stage. I decided that, since he often referred to himself in the third person, I would too. That way, we cut out any need for either the first or second persons to intrude on the conversation. Every stage is a Peter Sagan stage. He lost the stage. But he lost it by an impossibly small margin to Matteo Trentin. The photo finish revealed that after 245.5 kilometres, there was no more than the width of an outer tube between first and second place. And it was no surprise whose wheel was the wrong side of that split. That day, I simply didn't know what to say to him, so I kept it brief. Peter, bad luck. Always I have unluck. Unluck. A word he had invented on the 2013 tour when he suffered from a fair amount of it in the early stages of the race. Now it descended on him and smothered his every effort to break free of such a remarkable losing sequence. Unluck was the perfect word for where he was right now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 